Let us be reminded today, this Easter Sunday, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in the history of the world, in the history of the universe. It is something that touches everything and everyone. And it is the single most significant event that has or ever will happen to you if you're a Christian. It's the one thing that affects the life to come. Many things are involved with this life. But the resurrection is the doorway to heaven. And without it, the door is shut. There's no hope. There are, not, there are no other events like this. There have been many signal events in human history that have changed the course of history, we say, and affected many people, but nothing like this. So as we gather this morning, it's important for us to ponder the importance of it and to think about the reactions and the outcomes of it. In doing so, we look, first of all, to 1 Thessalonians, which we have been studying in recent weeks, and there are two references to the resurrection in that letter to the church at Thessalonica. First one occurs on verse, chapter 1, verse 10. By the way, sermon outline is on pages 10 and 11 in your bulletin. And the second one is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. So we want to pay attention to these and see the, the outcome of them. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1 that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then in verse 14 of chapter 4, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Let us pray. Use your word this morning, O Lord, to waken us, to stiffen us, to strengthen us, that we might serve you faithfully. And remind us, O Lord, of the great truths that you have given us here today, in Jesus' name. Amen. I dare say we think not enough about the resurrection and its impact in our daily lives. Even those of us who are regular church attenders, ministers, leaders in the church, teachers of various kinds, we don't think of the implications. And this sermon is a bit about that. You'll notice that I mentioned here in the outline that Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as an accomplished fact, almost in passing, as if everybody knows this. He does not argue for the resurrection. He argues from the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians and in the Gospels and in other places, Paul and the writers are arguing for the truth of the resurrection. And they speak about the facts surrounding it and how it happened. They speak of the witnesses. They speak of the stone, of the angels, of the soldiers, and of, of, of uh, the king, and all the things that came as a result of, of Jesus' resurrection. His appearances his meeting with the disciples at the beach and having breakfast with them. The Bible continues to uh, profess and argue for the fact of the resurrection. It says here, look at this and look at that. And notice over here how these things really happened and were true. Well, I think one of the greatest testimonies to the resurrection and the great assurances that it gives to me is in situations and in passages like this where Paul is riding along, talking to another group of people, advising them about this and that, and he just mentions the resurrection in passing, as if it were an accomplished fact. He doesn't stop and argue for it. He says these things are true, and these things result as a result of it being true. He argues from its resurrection, and he ties his resurrection to us. 
This is the thing that's often missed on Easter. We think of, we speak of Jesus' resurrection. We don't think enough and speak enough about the resurrection impact on ourselves in a practical way upon our lives. What are the outcomes of this resurrection in daily life? Paul ties his resurrection to uh, emphasizing our commonality. That is to say, Jesus' resurrection has more in common with our own than it has in terms of difference. Oh, yes, Jesus' resurrection is unique. He raised himself. He was raised from the dead for our justification. No question about it. But one day we will be raised as well. And there is a strong connection between that raising and his raising. And one day when we see that, we'll see the implication of it. So there are insights to be gained here as we pause for a moment to look at this section. And first of all, verse 10, he says, We are here to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. What are we doing every day? Well, we do this, we do that, we busy ourselves, we pray, we serve, we give, we love, we work, we suffer in one way or another, we may have differences with our families. But one of the things we're doing, one of the main things we're doing now is waiting for his son from heaven. We are not idle. Because of the resurrection, because of the first coming of Jesus, we know that the second coming is going to happen. Imagine yourself in the Old Testament where the first coming hadn't even happened. Then you're waiting for two comings, the first and the second coming of Christ as foretold by the prophets. But we're on the other side of that, and Paul is too as he writes this. He says, we've already got the first one. So now what we're doing is not nothing. We're, get, we're busying ourselves in sort of mundane things, but the main thing we're doing is we're waiting for him to come back. We're listening for the trumpet call, for the cry of the archangel. I must say and must confess, even though I've been a full-time clergyman these years, I don't always think that way. But that's what the Bible says. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Keeping the fact of his resurrection in mind... We are to wait for him even as we go about our daily business. This also explains how we can bear suffering and loss here, for this world is not our home. He doesn't say to wait for the sun from heaven and make ourselves a great kingdom and establishment here. He says, he raised us from the, he, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we bear suffering and loss here. We bear up under it. We have hope because he's coming back and his return is sure and certain and it explains everything so what we have now is what Paul calls our light and momentary troubles they're only light and momentary if we live them in the, in the light of the resurrect, resurrection the light and momentary troubles are not light and momentary they are heavy and burdensome and they seem to be endless at times as illness and difficulties and relationship, broken relationships continue. But we can bear suffering now, says Paul, because he's coming back. Though born much later, as I say in item C, believers are now in the same place as Paul was. We were looking back on the resurrection and forward to his return and living between those two events. There are only a few major events in the scriptures. This is the greatest. And now the second coming is last and will come in the future. He also rescues us from the coming wrath. This resurrection is a guarantee that what he says is true. Unlikely, unique, special, 
but so are his unlikely, unique, and special promises. He says Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead and who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's the meaning of it. This is a great source of comfort and joy to us, for we have been delivered in the past from sin and death, and one day in the future we shall live with him forevermore. Then, too, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We believe that he rose from the dead. It is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. We believe he made it heavens and earth. We believe that he redeemed his people from Israel. But the one event that we can't live without, the one event that makes everything else rise or fall, is his resurrection. Faith in this great fact is the foundation of life here and of the life to come. Many times, you know, we've gone to ball games or concerts, and about two minutes before we got to the front gate, I say to Gail, do you have the tickets? Have you got the, and she says, no, I thought you had them. We aren't going in then. We're not making it. Usually, though, she has them. <laughs> she passes one to me, and I hold mine, and she holds hers. I learned a long time ago that she wants to hold her own ticket. <laughs> Give me my ticket. Okay. And when we get to the person who's taking the tickets, we get in. We hadn't really thought much about it. Maybe we ordered the tickets a long time ago. They've been sitting in the drawer somewhere. But now it's everything. And if we don't have that ticket, we're not getting in. We don't think much about the resurrection, including me sometimes. We get so busy and so caught up in so many other things, even religious and Christian service of various kinds, missions and evangelism and prayer and teaching and caring for people and music. But this ticket is everything. And one day we will look down into our hands and see, if not an actual ticket, at least an entrance into glory that was purchased and accomplished and ratified by his resurrection. It will mean everything. And for those who don't get in, it'll be because they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of his life ever, that he gives the life everlasting. This is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, there's much more to Christian life than this. But this is so important that it should almost shadow and dwarf and diminish everything else. God will bring with Jesus those who have perished before his return. Here we learn that there, in his second coming, and the, the resurrection of the dead will occur. He talks about it much in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and over in 2 Thessalonians. The dead in Christ will rise. There will be a general resurrection of the dead. Indeed, the graves of all will be opened, and there will be a separation from the sheep and the goats into one and the other by, the, by God, the great judge. He will bring with Jesus those who have perished before his return. If we die before his second coming, then we'll be in the parade. We'll be a part of this grand entrance that he makes back on earth. And we'll be with him. And we'll see it. And we'll rejoice in it. And it will be the greatest event, even of heaven itself. Hope for future blessing is now possible for us. And our resurrection is tied to Christ's, even as his is also distinct from ours. The Bible speaks in these terms. It says he's the first fruits. There's a lot more fruit coming. He's the first. 
The Bible speaks of him being the firstborn from the grave. There's many people coming, but he was the first. His, connect, his resurrection is connected to ours. We will not resurrect ourselves. I will not resurrect you, and you will not resurrect me. Christ will raise the graves. The trumpet, saw, the trumpet shall sound at his command. The archangel shall give a shout. And there should be a tremendous reunion between those who are in heaven and those who remain still upon the earth. And there will be a marvelous, marvelous day. Our resurrection and his are tied together. So we know it's not just that we're clapping and praising and rejoicing in what he did. Because he was just the first. Because he lives, we too shall live. Because he was the first fruits, we shall be following. And because he was... The firstborn, we shall be following. So let's talk about now the outcomes of this. These basic truths are here. These implications are tied, as I said, to Jesus' resurrection and ours. It's something that we have because of what he did. And it draws our attention to his return, to our rescue, and to our beloved dead. Those we have lost. This world does not continue unchanged. We lose folks from time to time. And there's a grand reunion coming based on this central fact. But there's more, and we haven't time to fully explore all this, but let's just summarize it. Here I'm using the suggestions of John Piper, a minister in Minnesota, who mentions there are 10 things that he can see in the scriptures that are of practical implication and outcome for us. First of all, we have now a savior who can never die again. For a time, he limited himself when he lived on this earth. He limited himself when he underwent the pains of death and suffering for a time, when he submitted himself to the authority of Pilate and Herod, but he'll never die again. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll never go from this world to the next and, and leave us alone. He'll never be busy in some other part of the universe or some other interplanetary system. He's coming He'll never die again. There's an eternal aspect of the resurrection. It happened in the past. Its implications are in the present. But in the future, there shall never be another separation. This is Romans 6, verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. He's the ever-living, ever-interceding, ever-reigning, ever-ruling Jesus Christ, the judge and rule of all the earth. We cannot outlive him. He will never die nor cease to exist. His reign shall be without end. The second outcome of this, that's, a, that's thrilling, isn't it? Isn't that good news? Another good outcome of it is repentance. Acts 5. The God of our fathers, says Peter as he preaches, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel. Repentance. Part of the outcome of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we can repent and come to him in faith. It's a great one of the outcomes of what he did. Repentance is given to us as a gift because of his resurrection. He was raised, he was killed, he was killed and raised and exalted to the right hand so that Israel, so that his people might repent and believe. So whenever we pray a prayer of repentance, 
Whenever we acknowledge that we are sorry and confess our sins to one another and to the Lord, this is a direct result of the resurrection. Otherwise, we're just talking. There's no power in it, no conviction. The third gift, the third outcome of it is from 1 Peter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope, a new birth as a result. Not just a past event, not just a future reunion, but new birth now. Living hope. My son Eric in Aberdeen goes to a church, a PCA church there called Living Hope Presbyterian Church. They base their entire identity upon this phrase, living hope. It is a living hope. It is something that sustains us. It doesn't die. And it's because of his great mercy. It is a hope that comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's vain. There's no one to rescue us. We're in a hopeless sinking ship. Fourthly, as I read earlier this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Forgiveness is impossible without the resurrection. Forgiveness is impossible without the resurrection. Someone had to die and pay the penalty for our sins. Someone had to be measured and, and weighed in his faithfulness, and he was found to be true. And as a result, we have forgiveness of sins. If he was still in the grave, if he hadn't gone to the cross, there would be no forgiveness of sins. No payment would have been made. We might say, oh, I forgive you, but he couldn't say that. He couldn't forgive us because his fealty to the law of God, his faithfulness and integrity there, once it is broken, it must be paid for, and we have broken it. So the resurrection gives us a Savior who cannot die. It gives us repentance. It gives us new birth. It gives us forgiveness of sins. These things are all tied together like facets of one diamond. Fifthly, it means the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This God whom Jesus, this Jesus whom God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, therefore exalted him at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes in his fullness following the resurrection of Christ because Jesus' work is done, and he has decided that he's not going to show us himself physically like he showed the disciples, He's going to show himself to us through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And one of the great testimonies of the church is that all of us gathered here this morning, different as we are and unconnected as we are, who believe in Jesus Christ have one thing inexorably in common that binds us together now and for all eternity, and that is the work and power of the Holy Spirit. The work and power of the Holy Spirit. We know, too, sixthly, that there is no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. First, Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. He's the one who sits in the judgment seat, and he's the one who can, de who can uh, determine our future. But more than that, he didn't just die, he was raised. And who is at the right hand of God, 
and indeed interceding for us. He who cannot die is interested in one thing, you. His focus is always on you. He's not reading the paper. He's not thinking about Pluto or Uranus or some other planet, although he holds all those things in his hands. His affection and his attention is upon you. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now to intercede and pray for you so that you would have his full attention and you would have no condemnation as a result. He has accomplished it. You are precious to him. And we have, seventhly, his personal fellowship and protection. I am with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. He says this as he's resurrected and appearing before the disciples on the mountain in Matthew 28. He says, I'm going to be with you always. Now I'm leaving and I'm sending the Holy Spirit in his fullness, but I'm going to be with you. Don't think for a moment that personal fellowship and protection will be denied you because of my departure. His resurrection guarantees that now his work is finished regarding redemption. It's merely the application and sanctification that he's making. Eighthly, the resurrection is proof of a coming judgment. Acts 17 says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And we know who that man is. And of this he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. Acts 17.31 By raising him from the dead, this one fact is assurance that the judgment is coming. And although there are many, many positive things about the resurrection, this one, for those who would refuse to believe, is a warning. Judgment's coming. He's alive. He's coming back in his own time and way. And when he comes back, he is going to expect an account of how we've lived and what we believe. He already knows where our hearts are. But even now, he may be drawing yours to submit to him even more. To say to him, yes, Lord, I am yours. And I want to do as you have told me to do. It's chilling, isn't it, to read as Jesus said, don't say anything in secret because... Whatever you say in secret will be broadcast on the rooftop. I don't like that verse. I do not like that verse. Because what he's saying is, even my thoughts, which I don't form into words, will be in a matter of accounting before him. Even what I think can be told from the rooftops and be a matter of shame and embarrassment for me. Maybe I will be forgiven, and surely I will be in Christ, but I don't want that to happen. I don't want you to hear what I've been thinking. I don't want Gail to hear what I've been thinking. Proof of coming judgment is there. Ninthly, the salvation from the future wrath of God. That's what we've already read about this morning. We wait for his son, we read, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yes, there's a coming judgment, and his, his resurrection will be proof of that. But there will also be a salvation coming in which the sheep and the goats are divided, but the sheep are allowed to live forever as his people and our marvelous guide and helper. And then finally, the, the last outcome of the resurrection that John Piper gives us is our own resurrection from the dead. 
We know that he who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with him into his presence. This I've already said, and I close with emphasis upon this point. His resurrection is directly tied to your future. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and maybe someday soon, either in death or in the second coming of Christ, we will be called to account before him and his resurrection will be our only hope. Now trust in him will be our only testimony, our only defense, the only thing we can turn to for help. His faith in Jesus Christ is a precious thing, but it rests upon a central fact, and that central fact is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate today. Do not minimize it. We'll try in these next six weeks to emphasize, as Nick says during the Eastertide season, the resurrection, because we've underappreciated. I mean, we don't sing Christ the Lord is risen today except on Easter. We don't sing up from the grave he arose except on Easter, but his resurrection is celebrated every Sunday. And it was so important to the early church that they did something unusual. The early church was not very innovative. They built everything on the apostles', on the pro apostles teaching and on the prophets of the Old Testament. But they did one thing. They changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. They said the resurrection is so important. Jesus being the first fruits, Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, is so important that the first day of the week we're going to give to him. We're going to, be, we're going to meet together to worship and we're going to meet together to remember and to apply these things in our lives. Jesus Christ, the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Let us pray. We sit among the lilies, Lord. We sing the songs of Easter. And now we see the hard reality of your resurrection and what it means. It means our repentance. It means our hope. It means our salvation. It means our eternal life. It means the Holy Spirit can do his full work now. It means that you will always be with us to fellowship with us and protect us. It means that you will be the triumphant one now and always. And it means that our fate is sealed as we trust in you. You will never leave nor forsake us and you will bring us home with you one day. This is intended to make a difference in my life and yours and, and these people's, O oh Lord. And we pray that you would use this great truth to transform us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.